invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to finish this chapter up, the Lord willing, today as well. I apologize for moving so fast through this chapter. Some of these chapters we've taken a little bit of time with, but uh, we'll finish up uh, chapter 11 this morning. I trust the study of God's Word, and particularly the uh, Gospel of Matthew, has been a blessing to you. We are surrounded by mysteries. One of the wisest men in Israel by the name of Nicodemus asked Jesus Christ to explain the new birth, and our Lord turned to the mystery and the reality of the wind for a simple explanation. He said, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Mystery and reality join together in the wind's original or origin and its effects. Uh, no one, not even the President of the United States or any company or powerful company, can claim power to control the wind. The wind blows without our influence or our control. Uh, we may not be able to explain the physics of wind, but we can definitely see its effects, can we not? How much more are the mysteries surrounding God's saving work through Christ? Now, very few subjects have stirred the emotions among Christians like that of the mystery of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty in salvation and the reality of the free offer of the gospel to everyone. There have been strong divisions that separate churches and denominations over this subject due to the notion that either one or the other must be true, but certainly not both. Some are comfortable leaving all the mystery and... Uh, all, all of it to mystery, and so they give no thought or care for the salvation of sinners. Others cannot accept the least bit of mystery when it comes to divine issues, and so they draw back at the teaching of God's sovereignty. What, is, what do we mean by sovereignty? Well, we mean absolute supreme power and authority. You know, we sometimes talk about kings or leaders of, of countries having being sovereign. But in reality, they're not sovereign. There's only one who is sovereign. There is only one who is supreme. There is only one who is absolute and has absolute authority and power over everyone. And that's God. So some of these views that people take are to the extreme. One refuses to evangelize for the fear of freely offering the gospel to the non-elect. The others uh, might entice and manipulate people uh, into making decisions for Christ, thinking that it's within the nature of man to respond properly to the gospel if they give it in a winning presentation. Now, sometimes uh, uh, the one side, we say no 
evangelization, no gospel presentation, and some of you probably grew up, grew up in some churches where there was no mention of the gospel, there was no mention of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And others will say, well, if we can just kind of manipulate you to make a decision for Christ, and we give you a winning presentation, if we uh, uh, get you some entertainment and some music, and uh, we just come down to your level, maybe you'll, uh, uh, maybe you'll make a decision. But I believe both of these groups have missed the biblical teaching. Because it is not in not presenting the gospel, or it is not presenting it in a winning way that gets people saved. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in individual hearts. The Holy Spirit of God is the one who does the work. Now, we have only to look at the teachings of Christ to see how He held unwaveringly to the sovereignty of God in salvation while calling all men to believe in Him. So mystery and mercy are joined together in Christ's gospel, so it must be in our understanding and our application of the gospel as well. And I trust that we will glory in God's mystery and mercy in salvation. Notice with me, first of all, the mystery of divine sovereignty. The mystery of divine sovereignty. When Paul probe the depth of God's sovereign, that is His supreme power and authority. Again, I say that's actually only for God. When Paul looked into the depths of God's sovereign working in salvation, he dared not exclaim with great joy, Ha! I've figured it out. He never said that. But what did he say? He said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Those words, unsearchable and His ways, those are words of mystery. Paul means God does what He does in salvation and I really can't grasp it all. It's beyond me. It's a mystery, but it's a wonderful mystery. It's this mystery that we see here in a brief prayer of Christ in our text this morning. Certainly it was no mystery to Him, but Jesus Christ offers praise to the Father for the mystery that veils eternal salvation. He found it praiseworthy, and so should we. Though we see and experience the results of divine election and Christ's saving work, there is great mystery involved in all of it. Notice first of all the Father's pleasure. The Father's pleasure. Verse 25 says, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. This is a prayer that Jesus prayed, and we're struck by His praise. He says, I thank Thee. It's a prayer of thanksgiving and praise. I praise You. I thank You for Your pleasure in Revelation. Right after Christ rebuked and warned of the blindness of the religious leaders in Israel, He glories in the divine mystery of Revelation. And at one and the same time, the religious leaders and their followers 
are held accountable for rejecting the witness of John the Baptist and the testimony of our Lord. And Jesus acknowledges that it's the Father's pleasure alone that determines revelation of the gospel. And we talked about the cities of Galilee and how they were accountable for rejecting the gospel light given to them through the miraculous works of Christ and His preaching. But God alone is praised for His revealing the light of the truth to the darkened minds of those who are characterized here as babes or infants. Now we must admit that mystery surrounds such statements. Rightly so, for here we are met with the secret workings of God, the eternal, the immutable, the invisible, the omnipotent God of creation. And as he says, the Lord of heaven and earth, though Christ often uses the title Father, it is only here that he calls the Father the Lord and heaven of earth, and that expresses divine sovereignty. The wisdom of God's sovereign rule is praised by Christ, and it should be by us as well. By right of creation, men are held accountable for obeying and submitting to the Creator, and yet in the stubbornness of mankind's hearts, all men rebel against their Creator. And so by sheer mercy, the Lord of heaven and earth reveals to some the glory of the gospel so they might believe. All have enough light to be justly condemned for rejecting the rule of God over them, according to Romans chapter 1. But out of God's good pleasure, some are brought to the understanding of God's good news in Christ and submission to His kingship. Charles Wesley expressed it best in his hymn, and can it be? He said, "'Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me." Can you say that this morning? It found out you? I can say that, oh my God, it found out me. Though it's all mercy, some will still complain. They'll still find fault with the ways of God. They'll claim, well, God is unjust in His dealings. The Bible says, Therefore hath He mercy on whom He will have mercy, and on whom He will He hardeneth. That's the divine prerogative found in Romans chapter 9. And as vessels in the, master's pot, as a, in the hands of the master potter, we have no right to complain, as Paul goes on to say there in that chapter. But Jesus says, I thank thee. And with Jesus, we are to thank Him and we're to praise the Father for His display of divine choices, which means that we are simply confessing or agreeing what was, with what is true of God. To speak what is true of God is to praise Him, to thank Him. For what things did Christ praise or thank the Father? Well, He praised Him for hiding the truths of the kingdom from those who thought they understood God's kingdom. He says, Thou hast hid things from the wise and prudent. These things. Now the these things there refers to the truths proclaimed by John the Baptist and by Jesus Himself. Kingdom truths, we might call them. Every Jew thought he understood the kingdom of God. Yet the basic understanding held by the religious leaders was totally off base. And I think it's much that way today. What people think is Christianity is really not Christianity. They call themselves Christians, 
but they're not the Christians of the Bible. Like most people in our day, they, think, they thought the kingdom life began through slavish adherence to laws and rituals instead of seeing oneself as bankrupt before God. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Their perception of the kingdom related almost entirely to the physical and material realm. They were concerned about armies and palaces and marketplaces. And so the teachings of John and Jesus flew right over their heads. Even the most studied among them could not put together by sheer intellectual the simple truths of the king, kingdom life. They were hidden by the wise, judicious prerogative of God. But, he says, thou hast revealed them unto babes. Now, babes does not refer to newborns or to those who have, uh, but rather to those who have no claim of understanding the things of God. It's really a metaphor used to describe those who are not wise in their own eyes and boasting before God. Babes are the people who come to see their own insufficiency, who have wisdom to see that what they do not know. It's being poor in spirit. The ones that realize they have no good but God, uh, but of God and no way to God but of Christ alone. They have no merit, they're no boasting, no claim to deserve salvation. Those look to God's mercy to give them what is needed to know, know God. But we must acknowledge that all of these people were certainly not illiterate. They were not people that were uninstructed. Remember Joseph of Arimathea? Remember Nicodemus? They were well-schooled in biblical truths as well as others, and yet it was not their level of intelligence that opened the way to the kingdom. It was the pleasure of God in revealing the gospel to them. He says, thou hast revealed them. And that points to the sovereign pleasure of God in giving the light where there is darkness and making clear what is muddled. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. It's not that these truths did not exist in the handwritten copies of Scripture, nor had they had no exposure to them through the rituals they practiced with all the symbolism pointing to Christ. The problem was in their minds. They can see something in black and white, and yet they do not really perceive it. And men and women today can read what's in God's Word, but they cannot, they cannot perceive it. They can read it, they can hear it, and yet they're apathetic toward it, being darkened in their understanding. It's like touring one of the battleships that belongs to our great Navy. You know, if you go into one of the battleships, and I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to do this, but we have, you might see mess halls and bunks. Now, unfortunately, we weren't able to see one that was in operation. It was one that had been kind of put aside, because of its age, but you'll see mess halls and bunks and gunner ports and other essentials on the ship. And then you stand in awe of the huge 16-inch guns that fire massive shells over 20 miles. And what might be a mystery is how 2,000-pound shells can be loaded into one of the shipwork, uh, into, the, into one of those guns, and yet along comes a ship worker, and he might ask if you'd like to know more about it. Of course, everyone would be curious. And he opens a door labeled magazine. And there you will, 
you would not be able to enter in without Him because He has the key. But as He opens the door, you're able to see the inner workings, the huge wheels, the cogs, the chains that move tons of munitions into the right spot. And you can see a label on the door, but the worker revealed everything, how everything works. Even so, we might see truth and be able to recite it, but it is God alone who can open the door of our understanding so that we can see it and believe it. The Father's pleasure. Secondly, notice the Son's will. The Son's will. After the prayer here in verses 25 and 26, there is either an explanation or a continuation of confession of praise or the incarnate Son's rehearsing of divine truth that He might glory in the Father's wisdom. In it we find the most remarkable statements by Jesus concerning the certainty of sovereignty in salvation. Notice verse 27. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. You're going to notice the Son's will here. This very next statement contains one of Scripture's most powerful gospel invitations. We'll get to that in a moment. But here, Jesus does not hesitate to declare the sovereign, mysterious purposes of God in selecting some for salvation and passing over others. To his mind, there was no contradiction between sovereignty and the free invitation of the gospel, nor should we consider them to be contradictions either. A clear exclusion is stated. No man cometh or knoweth the Father, but or knoweth the Son, but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Christ divides humanity between the wise and intelligent who do not grasp the gospel and mere babes in understanding who God reveals gospel truth. Again, the division is clear between those who do not know the Son or the Father, that is, to know Him experientially, intimately in a relationship, and those whom the Son wills to reveal God. Now some might say, well, that's not fair. Not fair that God would not reveal Himself equally to all men? But that's a serious misunderstanding. The basic problem is that men do not want to know God without God's gracious intervention. The Bible tells us, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. David writes that in the Psalms, and Paul writes it in Romans chapter 3. We are satisfied for God to stay out of our lives until He reveals to us the sad condition of our hearts. And then we become desperate for God, and we must know Him, or we, must, we will find life intolerable. Christ identifies those who will know God through the ages, that is, those who will know Him through the intimate uh, intimacy of a, uh, knowledge, or a relationship. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and, to, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal Him. Here's a mystery that none of us can really fathom. If you're a Christian, it's because the Son was pleased to reveal Himself to you through the Gospel. Was there a good reason or even a poor reason for Him to reveal Himself to sinners like us? Did you do something that got His attention? 
or persuade Him to include you in His divine favor? Was it your birth or your race or your religious affiliation or your potential to aid His kingdom? Of course not. So you have the mystery of divine sovereignty. But along with that, in this passage, I'm so thankful for the mercy of a divine invitation. The mercy of a divine invitation. With no contradiction, Christ offers the greatest invitation the world has ever known. The call for sinners to come to Christ and find rest of salvation. The mystery behind the divine invitation is that God's grace prompting and enabling stubborn sinners to flee to God's refuge in Christ. Now we may not understand the mystery when we come to Christ, and that is likely. It may be that we simply hear the Lord's invitation and we run to Him by faith without realizing what He willed before we were created and how He brought it about and how the work of regeneration and the effectual working of His grace. You know, the trouble is, that often men will conjure up their own ideas on how to have a relationship with God. You know, if I just go to church every Sunday, then I can have a relationship with God. Or if I just, uh, if I give money in the offering, I'll have a relationship with God. Or if I just do enough good deeds, I'll help the poor. If I'll do enough rituals, I'll, uh, you know, I'll say enough prayers, I'll bow down before enough idols, then I can have a relationship with God. Those are all men's ideas of relationship. Those are not God's ideas. The religious leaders in Galilee were doing just that. They were constructing elaborate systems of do's and don'ts and hoops to jump through that would make one righteous. But as Isaiah questioned, Wherefore do ye spend money for that which, ye, uh, for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Instead, he says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It is not what we do that saves us. The work belongs to Christ alone, and He bids us to come to Him. Now notice here in verse 28 and 29, First of all, Christ commands. Christ, Christ commands. Come unto me, all ye that, are, that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Christ gives three commands in this invitation to sinners. He says, come. He says, take. And he says, learn. Coming to Christ is not a geographical move. It's not a call to come to a certain location at the front of the church or to any other spot. Christ says, come unto me. We're not coming to a religious movement or to an institution or to a philosophy of life. We're coming to Christ, the Son of God, the Redeemer of sinners. We come to Christ as He has revealed Himself to us in the Scripture. We do not come to Christ of our own construction that strips the remainders of His deity or humanity or sufficiency in favor of men's desires. We come to Christ of the Gospel who bore the judgment of God at the cross and rose from the dead by the mighty power of God to confirm the effectiveness of His work. Coming to Christ excludes all others. 
He alone is the way to the Father. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now there's a qualification about who can come to Christ. He says, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. The words imply a people that are wearied by the excess of legalism of their day and the laborious striving to please God by their own power. The present tense of labor suggests that it's an ongoing struggle so the anxious sinner is left in a state that he can only describe as being heavy laden. Jesus also tells us, not only come, but he says, take, take my yoke upon you. You know what a yoke is? Some of us have kind of probably forgotten what that is like. What's a yoke? A yoke is for, used for oxen pulling wagons or plows. Usually two oxen were joined together under one yoke. It was like a big piece of wood that went over one, uh, one ox, and over another one, and they were then uh, strapped to that, and they would pull together. That's what a yoke is. Two oxen joined together in one yoke. And the term came to imply submission or obligation to the master. You know, it's not bad when we're yoked to Christ. That's a good thing. The call of Jesus Christ in the gospel is never that we should chart the course of our lives so we can follow our own will. The yoke means that we're joined to Christ. He is the strong one pulling the load and we go with him every step of the way. So he says, take my yoke upon you. And then he says, and learn of me. He adds this. The word means to learn through instruction and carries with it the idea of being a disciple or a follower of Christ, regularly learning of him. I trust that's what you're doing when you come to the services here and we look into the Bible and you're learning of Him. Learning things that you need will help you. It reminds us that a Christian's life is a journey that does not end until we reach heaven. All along the way, Jesus Christ is instructing us through His Word. He's taking the circumstances of life, the good and the bad, the success and the suffering, the joys and the trials, and supplying truth and applying truth to all. He continues to reveal himself to us and expose us to the depth of our weaknesses and the need that we have for his constant supply of grace. So in the invitation of Jesus Christ, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you've come to Christ recognizing him alone as your Savior and your Lord. He affirms that you have taken up the yoke of submission to him as the Lord of all of your life, so you will delight to do his will. And it means you're learning from him, being regularly instructed from the word. That is a Christian. One who's come to Christ, been yoked in submission to Christ, regularly learns from Christ, and then by that standard, Jesus Christ says you are a Christian. So he commands. Secondly, he explains. Christ explains. But we find the command of Christ to exceed our strength many times or our confidence. So Jesus Christ explains why we are to come to him as wearied and burdened sinners. And the first reason is found in his ability. Come unto me and I will give you rest. The I is emphatic. He says, come unto me and I myself will give you rest. Jesus is unlike any other religious leader or figure. The difference, the great difference between Christ and all the religious leaders 
is that he can give power. Buddha can't give power. Hinduism, the leader of Hinduism can't give power. Muhammad can't give power. No other religion has a leader, has one that can give you the power that you need to live for him. Only Christ can do that. And we find rest, not simply in the superiority of his precepts, but in the supports of his grace. He's not only able to give you rest, but he will give you rest. Can you trust Christ? Well, look at his character as the second reason for his explanation here. He not only says, I will give you rest, but he says, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You see, again, unlike the religious leaders of this world that had befuddled and confused the masses, Jesus Christ is gentle and humble. The people were accustomed to the arrogance of the scribes and the Pharisees, but Christ would declare his selflessness and self-control as well as his humility and heart. By the way, some so-called religious leaders have tried to appear humble, but even their humbleness, it's a false humility. And they're trying to bring glory to themselves in that. That's not what Christ does. In perfect control, Jesus Christ bore up under the reproach of sinners without retaliating or complaining or bailing out on doing the Father's will. He therefore is dependable in all of His promises. And so in perfect humility, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the most terrible death in the Roman Empire, the death on the cross. And so he's faithful in all that he claims. Christ also explains his accomplishment, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is Christ that has borne the yoke of the law for us, fulfilling its demands and satisfying the righteousness of God on our behalf. It is Christ that has taken up the burden of our sin at the cross. The yoke is easy and the burden is light only because Christ has accomplished all that the Father sent him to do on our behalf. There's one other thing, and that is that Christ promises here. He says, come unto me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, and learn of me, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. The rest, again, is certain because Jesus Christ has secured it. Rest implies that it's all been taken care of. When he said, it is finished on the cross, he meant that. It's finished. It's a rest for our troubled uh, souls uh, from uh, the troubles that we have from sin. And until you feel the reality of your sinfulness, and then this rest really makes no sense. This is where those of you without Christ, perhaps this morning, perhaps struggle. You hear the invitation to come to Christ, but you think that to do so would spoil your life. You might think, well, it's going, to, it's going to upset my plans. It's going to upset my ambitions if I come to Christ. You think Christ's going to rain upon your parade. You'll become, uh, you'll become living a, a life that's gloomy and boring. Hey, the Christian life is anything but gloomy and boring. Listen to his words again. Ye shall find rest unto your souls. In other words, there is satisfaction of rest through Christ. He calls us to his yoke and his burden, guarantees all the power of the Creator and the Sovereign that you can find rest unto your souls. Now does 
How does this rest satisfy? Well, Jesus tells us that for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does that mean being a Christian is a piece of cake? No, certainly not. But by easy, he does not mean something that has no demands, but rather the words employed, useful, good, gracious, kind. Those are the words you should think about when he says easy. In other words, if you are outside of Christ today, you're probably going to, uh, cannot imagine the gospel and Christ, uh, Christian discipleship fitting into your life. But Jesus Christ assures us that it's a perfect fit. You can be employed in His service. You can be useful for that which is good and gracious. You may be looking and wondering uh, how you can bear up under the demands of the Scripture, but you see what Christ has promised. He says, my burden is light. And it's light because Jesus Christ is capable of carrying the full weight of our burden. And so this great salvation this morning is a mystery. God working in ways we cannot see, and, and we need to be glad that for that, for that alone is our hope against the background of our sinfulness. And I ask you this morning, have you come to Christ? Now, don't overload this command with your own baggage and your ideas of religion. Don't try to live the good life in your own strength. Come to Christ. Come to Him as your sin-bearer. Come to Him as your standing before God. Come to Him as your righteousness. Come to Him as your life. Come to Him as your Lord. Come to Him as your rest from the weariness and trials of life. And you'll discover that Christ and the demands of discipleship are a perfect fit for you. Come. Come. Christ offers you something that no other religion can offer. He is sovereign. He is supreme. He is the authority of all authorities. But He's also gracious. And He invites you today to come. And I urge you to come and take and learn. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for salvation through Jesus Christ. And even though we may not understand all that there is to understand about it, we need to just take you at your word. You've invited us to come. You've invited us to take and to learn. And Lord, I pray that even if there are those here this morning, and I'm sure many this morning have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, and they've come to you, but maybe that relationship is kind of shaky in the sense that there hasn't been the commitment. There hasn't been the learning. They've tried to take the yoke upon their own self and their own power. And we pray, Lord, that you will renew the promise and renew the, the message of your mercy to them this morning. Perhaps there's someone here that has never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. They've never put their faith and trust in him for their salvation. They're depending upon some other way. As we know, there is no other way. All other ways are futile. All other religions are hopeless. 
Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And we pray, Lord, if there's someone who has not come to Jesus Christ, that they'll come today. Lord, bless our time of invitation, and we pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God will work in our hearts, no matter what our need is this morning, that we'll be responding to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.